Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello guys, what's going on? Hope you're doing well. David here. I have a great guest for you today. I have Lee Taft. I'm sure many of you know Lee. Some might not though. Uh, Lee is also known as the speed guy. So that will give you a hint as to what we spoke about today. We spoke about all things speed and agility. Lee is one of the world-renowned experts in all things speed and agility. Not necessarily linear speed, but working with athletes and helping other coaches who work in field and court-based sports. So working with athletes who need to be able to do a lot of different things with their bodies in a lot of different directions and a lot of different ways and do it fast. So that's a that's a difficult problem to solve and how to train that. So that's what we spoke about today, all things speed and agility. Lee, he's someone I admire quite a lot. Um, he has a ton of it's clear to me that like he's been working on his craft for so long he thinks deeply about movement and how to coach movement and trying to always get better he's been doing this for i think over 30 years so um to maintain that passion and so much integrity and you'll hear that from the way he talks about movement um that's a big inspiration to me so um we spoke about Obviously, speed and agility, we spoke about the patterns, the seven patterns that Lee identifies and uses and how he actually coaches them patterns. And we spoke about maybe kind of reintroducing speed and agility to athletes, to healthy athletes, and then in, in a little bit of around the, re, the rehab process. And then towards the end of the podcast or the second half of the podcast, we spoke about kind of some backwards jogging and backwards running and why Lee likes to use that and all the different things you can think about when you're using that and all the different options you have to coach um, and all the little things that you can sprinkle in with that. Honestly, for me, that alone was worth the podcast for sitting down. Like that was that was a really brilliant segment for me to listen to. So um, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Don't forget to go and sign up for our membership site, DGR Interactive. We have 20% off there. You can use the code DGR Podcast. Here's an example of what we put up last week. So I did a 13-minute video on plyometrics using asymmetrical landings to bridge the gap between uh, double leg and single leg work in, in your plyometrics. So that's a video that's there that you can watch straight away, 13 minutes, and you'll and you'll be much smarter. And then I also put up an 18-minute video on hinging and where to begin and the common errors that people use or people that people uh, run into when they're coaching their hinge work and why you actually want to coach maybe hinge work in the way that I'm talking about, not necessarily just to do a big heavy deadlift, which is really great and is, a, is definitely a good option. But actually, if you want to open up uh, glutes, stretch glutes, the posterior capsule, open up the back of the hip, then this is a video that you want to watch. So that's 18 minutes there and 13 minutes on the plyometrics video. So that's what, I don't do public math, that's 21 minutes. And in 21 minutes, you oh no, sorry, 31 minutes, excuse me, 31 minutes. Um, that's all you need in two separate videos and there's all these other videos that you can watch as well. So go and sign up. That was just an example of last week's content. Uh, go and sign up, DGR Podcast for 20% off. Type DGR Inter- Interactive into your phone. And um, yeah, for now, here is Lee Taft and I hope you enjoy. Hello, Lee. How are you? Thank you very much for joining me. Hey, David, doing well. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. I've been admiring your work from afar for a while now, so um, so it's it's brilliant to get you on. I yeah, appreciate it. This will be fun. Do you want to give us a little bit of an elevator pitch? 
uh, as to who you are. It doesn't have to be super short or anything. I don't want to put, pre- I always say elevator pitch, but actually then people like rush it. So you don't have to rush it. No, no, absolutely. Uh, so I've been in, uh, you know, kind of a, the coaching and fitness world for quite a long time now. I started in the later 80s as a phys ed teacher. And I grew up in a family of teachers. I'm the youngest of six. And my father was in it 44 years. And my my brothers and sisters, you know, they all were in it. And um, so from that point, when I when I started as a teacher, I was also a, a head coach, a coach of uh, three different sports. I was coaching football. I was coaching basketball. And I was coaching track and field. And then I pursued the strength and conditioning. Probably around 1991, I went. I went into strength and conditioning and, um, uh, you know, so over the, you know, since then, I, I kind of went back into teaching a little bit back and forth, but I've, I've owned five facilities. We call them speed academies. Um, I have coached a lot of teams, um, especially basketball over the last many years, been a head coach of basketball. And um, so I've kind of done a lot, but it's always been in coaching and fitness and strength and conditioning realm. and then. Kind of my niche has always been this multi-directional speed, uh, simply because as an athlete myself, I was a college athlete. I played tennis and basketball in college, and I was good at that. I wasn't a big, powerful, strong athlete. I was a small, quick, you know, athletic uh, athlete. So it so it attracted me to it. So I started studying it and learning it. And so over the last you know 35 years, I've just really put a lot of time into understanding how we move, and and I'm still learning because we you know this especially in your your area of expertise as well. We just learn new things. You know, we find out how little parts of our body, whether it's genetics or or soft tissues, react to responses that years ago we thought differently, and so. So my ears and eyes are always wide open, but uh, but I enjoy the process and I've been fortunate. Do you, when, when you say you, you're learning, I know it's, it's probably a, a mixture of different things, but does does most of your learning come from just coaching, watching, pe- watching people move or like feeling, feeling things in your own body or where do you think, or is it a mix? Yeah, that's a great question because it is, it's, I'm a very kinesthetic learner myself. And you hear that a lot from coaches, especially because that's our field. But that's especially true for me. I've always been that way. I see things well, like I can see an athlete move and it makes sense to me because I've always been able to connect that really well, Mm -hmm. much better than like I've read, you know, tons of books and stuff, but I don't connect it as well because when I see movement, I'm like, oh, okay, there it is. That's what I was looking for. I don't always capture that when I read it. You know what I mean? So it's much easier for me to learn that way. So a lot of my, a lot of the learning that takes place for me is personally doing it, physically feeling it, having my athletes doing it and saying, oh, okay, there it is. I keep seeing the same things happening over and over with these different athletes. And then, David, it's watching other professionals who maybe have a specific specialty in their area. And I kind of, maybe I watch their stuff or I listen to their podcast or I listen to them talk and I'm like, oh, you know, I didn't think of it that way. And then I'll try it. And I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me. So it's definitely a mixture. But if I had to say, like, if you had to tell me, Lee, you get a million dollars, if you give me one answer, my one answer would be my experience, like my personal experience, trial and error, 
that helps me learn as well as anything. Okay. I actually do have a million dollars, so I will send it to you afterwards <laughs> for that answer. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm very same as you with that. I, I have to feel something in my own body. Um, but it, like when I was playing a lot of sports growing up and stuff, I had a weird thing where I was like, like almost, yeah, sometimes I'm in the game and stuff and sometimes I'm actually well, more so in training, but like just actually watching other people, my teammates move and seeing some of the best guys move. And I'm like, yeah. that's not how I do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can't necessarily figure it, out, figure it out, but like me and that person are not the same. They are, they are unbelievable at doing it in this way. And it just never felt like there wasn't a lot of people that, uh teammates like that were looking at it in that way at all like you know or even even i could watch a, a film of a team that we were going to play and i actually felt like okay i know so we would play a lot of gaelic football so we'd be kicking the ball and i when i went out and played then i could feel like every opposition player i know what kick what foot they're going to kick off what they're going to do how they're going to move just from watching them playing once and yeah. um yeah just think that was built into me but books and stuff i struggle i do struggle a little bit with that yeah you know yeah, yeah do you absolutely do you think the um do you think the teaching has has helped you with your coaching yeah without a doubt because think about this as a phys ed teacher i averaged about seven classes a day with roughly 25 to 30 students mm -hmm. so think how many opportunities you get just in one day to watch movement and it doesn't matter what unit we were doing, whether we were doing a, you know, a basketball or a gymnastics or a fitness or soccer, um, getting to watch movements. And because my background was in this kind of fitness area of movement and, and, and really wanting to study, I had the opportunity to, to experiment with all these kids and try different. Like I've, I was always really big on backpedaling. I, it always made sense to me from multitude of levels, right? From proprioceptive input awareness, um, like this dynamic range of motion in the foot and the ankle. So I was doing things way back then where I'm like, oh gosh, I get to see this every day. And, and the cool thing is, David, and, and when you're a phys ed teacher is these kids grow, they grow over the summer, you get them next year and you get to see them evolve and you get to see how your program can progress. And in the, in the field of sports performance, all these facilities, we hope and pray that we get kids year to year to year, but that doesn't happen that much. But as a phys ed teacher, you get them in kindergarten and first grade and second grade, and third. So I'm watching these kids develop, you know, over time. And, mm -hmm. and what a great test tube, right? It's like you got these kids and you can try all these different things. And it allowed me, you, you know this as well as anybody, the more touches you get. So in sport, we talk about the more touches, whether it's football or, you know, Gaelic sports or whatever it is, the more, the more exposure, more touches I get, the better I get. Same thing with your eyes. I'm watching 25 kids every day, yeah. you know, all year long, you just get better at it. You start to see more. And then when you put film to it and you can actually slow it down, now you can really study it. Yeah. I would have loved to have you as a, as a PE teacher. <laughs> I, I have a memory of our PE teacher in in um in in high school and he used to just throw the ball in and he'd go up and sit in his car which was kind of looking down over the pitch 
So it was yeah. just a game and he refereed it by putting on his um his indicator. I don't know, do you would you call an indicator in the car? So a, a blinker yep. for left or right. So left blinker was like free to the to the, to the going left, right blinker was free going right, and there was zero coaching or anything yeah, like that. So that's my memory of PE in school, which was not it was good for the kids who are good at sport and for the kids yeah. who are like they, they just wouldn't get the ball, they just stand there. Yeah, so. absolutely. And unfortunately. Your experience is common. It, it was more common than not. We saw that here in the States as well. So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That needs to change. Um, cool. So tell me, what, um, what, does your, what does your days look like now? Are you more, who, what kind of population are you working with? Or is that, is that a mix? Yeah, I, I don't have as many athletes as I, as I used to. We moved uh, from Indiana to, um, well, not quite two years ago, but we're down in Florida now. And of course, we moved during the pandemic. So everything was just kind of slow. It wasn't much going on. So I do more consulting than anything now. But I do have like I have some, you know, basketball players I work with. Of course, I have my own children that I am constantly working with and adjusting and changing their programs. And I have different ages, so which is good. Um, and I have I have uh, some, you know, higher level baseball play like a, you know, basketball and different, just different sports that I work with, but not a ton of it. So a lot of my day is I, I do my, my own little podcast. Now I do, I changed mine over the years to these short five to eight minutes thoughts. It's just, mm -hmm. here's my thought for the day. I'm going to talk about it and then get input to people. And I do the same thing with my blog, half a page to a page and a half, just, just my thoughts, get them down and get it out there. And I've been getting really good response to that. So we do stuff like that. Um, you know, we have a little, a little uh, <clears throat> private group that we deal with and, and I, we do modules for them and creating videos. So I do a lot of that stuff. And then, and then of course, communicating with our people. So yeah. that's kind of a lot of my day now. Yeah, that's cool. That's the, the shorter form content. I think it suits a lot of people to just, tune in, listen to one or two or three little episodes or whatever, and then, and then come back the next day. Um, I've been thinking about that, but we're not quite yeah. there. I've done a couple of solo episodes, but, um, but yeah. yeah, Instagram is that kind of, for me, that shorter form content every there day. Yeah, you know? there you go. Absolutely. And the thing is what you can do with it, because when I first started doing it, I was still doing the longer one. I was mm -hmm. still getting, but what was happening is I had interviewed for several years and a lot of people, and it was harder and harder for me to get uh, people schedules and stuff. So I said, you know what? I got so many questions keep coming into me. I'm just going to turn those into yeah. long answers. And so I would do them and the responses got better and better. People like, oh man, I can, I could be literally shaving and, and turn, turn your thing on five minutes, I get, you know, a quick episode and they yeah. liked it. So I said, you know, it, it's quick. It's easy. I can knock out a bunch of them if I want, you know, have them done. And yeah. then they're just, they're uploaded, ready to go when they go. Yeah. Or uh, anytime, anytime something comes up, like I have post-it notes <laughs> everywhere with comments. And I'm sure you guys do the same thing. You know, somebody says something, I'll write it down really quick. And that becomes either an episode or a conversation or a blog or whatever. And yeah. that's how I communicate a lot. It's what people are saying and what's out there in, in the internet world. What are, what's the topic right now? Then I'll start commenting on it. Yeah. Love that. I love that. The, uh, 
do you think it's do you think it's 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 important for you to get all this all like your thoughts and your work out there um obviously business-wise it's important but it's important for you to just get it out there and have it out there and not lose it in your own head maybe yeah yeah definitely and you know the other thing is i'm really really big on getting conversations started because i think sometimes our profession just kind of follows the flow sometimes mm-hmm. and they don't question things so there's times when I'll post things, even though I might think differently about it, I'll post it in a way that creates a little bit of a controversy because then more people start posting their thoughts. And I'm like, there we go. Now we're getting conversation. Now we can start to say, well, geez, maybe my way isn't the best way, or maybe my way is actually working really well. But sometimes until you question people, and I always said, I don't ever question people to be disrespectful. I question it to create conversation and to create thought. And so um, when I put a post out there, like if I'm talking on a particular topic like travel sports, um, travel sports are big here in the in the states now where where people have to pay, you know, quite a bit of money, a lot of money to do it, travel long distances and all, but they're skipping the development. They're skipping, actually, just let's get better at something first. Let's spend some time and get better at it. So I'll post on that a lot. And that always creates a lot of thoughts. And I'm like, hey, whatever you believe, post it. Let's get it out there. And then that way, at least maybe we can uh, start to, I'm big on improving the greater good. I think we got to improve it for athletes uh, to grow, to develop, but not make parents go bankrupt because they're spending all this money because the coach says, nah, unless you're on a travel team, you're never going to make it. I'm like, that's not true. Mm-hmm. So we need to get it out there. Yeah, man. Love it. Um, so first kind of first thing I wrote down when I was thinking about chatting with you is I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of thoughts out there with regards to sport and training athletes and athletic development where let them play the sport and then just get them in the gym, gym lifting, um, which Actually, I don't think is necessarily a bad idea um, and, and can work a lot. But when I think of you there, there, not that you wouldn't wouldn't get people lifting or anything, but I think of your world maybe being a little bit more in the middle of those two things and helping people with their speed and their agility and maybe that transfer over to the sport. So um, now maybe I'm unfair to describe some of your work like that. I don't know. But where where do you stand on that viewpoint of just like separate the sport and then just get them strong in the gym and, and leave everything else kind of up to themselves? Yeah, I you know, I, I'm real big on, on, I don't think there's one way to do it. I think, um, you know, I, I still think we're learning because I grew up at a time when we didn't have guys like you and I, where we, you know, can help an athlete develop. We just played, just like you said. We went when it was time for soccer or football or basketball, we went and played. And then we didn't have training back in the 70s and early 80s. We just it just wasn't around. So, but we were good athletes. So you know the model existed and it worked. But now we look at athletes, they're bigger, faster, stronger. And because there's so much more performance training, we know that works too. But at times we look at it and we say, yeah, but we're also still, the injuries are going up as well. So are we actually doing the right things? So the way that I look at it is I try to take an athlete that plays a sport and I try to take general athleticism 
and specific athleticism, so specific movement, speed patterns, whatever. And I try to give the athletes context so when they're playing, they understand why maybe this athletic stance is better than the one they're currently using. Or when they're trying to accelerate, here's why they have to accelerate maybe better in badminton or in racquetball or in soccer or football. This is why you want to accelerate. So I try to give them context always because what has happened in our world of sports performance is we've become very drill oriented. You know, does my video get more likes than your video? That's kind of where we're at. So we do these drills sometimes that don't really have a lot of application to improving performance. They just look good. And the athletes moving their feet really fast, but they haven't gone anywhere. They haven't produced any force. So the way that I do it, sometimes people look at it and they're like, well, that's all you do. I thought you did all this fancy. No, I'm like, I'm trying to improve performance and health. I don't care about all the fancy stuff. My stuff is very basic, very simple. It's built around those seven patterns. Um, and then the strength training gives my athletes the potential to produce more force mm -hmm. or reduce all that mass and momentum. So I look at it as the ultimate goal of an athlete is go play, go play your sport. Now, how can I secondarily, okay, because playing the sport is critical. That's, that's what they're doing it for. So secondarily, how can I make that experience more fun? and more enjoyable and improve their performance. So I try to do things that are general at first and then specific, because if I have to be a good goalie, well, there's specific things I got to do versus being a forward, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I just try to give them context all the time. Well, here's why you got beat. Let's, let's improve maybe your hip turn, opening those hips up and covering distance a little bit better. So it makes it really easy for me to get the message across to the athletes rather than doing these drills and the athlete finishes and saying, I don't know what I just learned. My feet moved really fast. I'm not sure I actually learned anything. So that's kind of my take on that. Yeah. When uh, What are the seven patterns? Yep. So we have two linear patterns, right? We've got acceleration and we got max velocity sprinting. Then we have two lateral, so we got a shuffle, lateral shuffle, gait cycle, and then we have a lateral run where we kind of are running sideways, but yet our upper body is still, some people call it a crossover. I call it a lateral run. Mm -hmm. And then we got two retreating patterns. We have a back pedal, and there's variations of the back pedal, and then we have this hip turn. So it would be like a tennis player at the net, and the ball gets lobbed over their head. Now they got to open their hips really quick and run back. So we call that a hip turn. And then we have jumping. And, he, and, he, and, and you can imagine all the variations of all those, right? There's tons of variations. But if we can give the athlete the foundation of those seven patterns, now we have a platform or a foundation to build off. Now mm -hmm. I can make it specific for your sport or for this athlete's sport. But if we can do those very well, we're, we're going to be ahead of the game. Now, the only thing I hadn't talked about yet is with, with those patterns is change of direction. So we can add that in as well. We got these different deceleration, reacceleration patterns. Uh, we've got like the 180 runs, 180 series, all these different things can go. 
But when I get athletes, and this is what I did with my phys ed kids, every day, that was part of our warm-up. They did those seven patterns, it only took a couple minutes, but, it, but they're getting exposure to it every single day. And next thing you know, they get better and better and better. And now when I really attack one of them and really try to break it down, they're ready for it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so good. Cause when I think of, or maybe I think when a lot of coaches, so like an SNC coach or something, they're dealing with a soccer player or a basketball or whatever. And they're like, okay, we need to start training speed here. I would say a lot of coaches are guilty of just going like, okay, I'm going to teach them some marches, some like ankle dribble, calf dribble, um, knee dribble, and some bounding and then some acceleration and some max velocity. And I teach them those drills and then we do those drills every every training session or one one training session or we we they basically just flog those drills to death for or those patterns to death for several years but now look for some for some field sport athletes and whatever they can make a lot of improvements probably just doing those drills because even some track athletes are doing those drills for 15 or 20 years and they're still yeah. now look at some stage they're probably a little bit obsolete they're just a warm-up but they're still maybe getting some benefits but so how how do you think about then in a with a limited time of an, with an athlete introducing those patterns not just in a not just in a warm-up but actually introducing them and 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 maybe progressing them and sticking with them for for maybe years at a time rather than just learning five or ten drills and off you go uh, absolutely this, this, this is this is the question right here that what you it's just a broad asked. question <laughs> well and, and what it is what's great about it is it makes us have a better understanding of programming mm -hmm. for success not just programming to get stuff done but let's be successful so every day when i'm training an athlete we're going to do those seven patterns during the warm-up because we have to warm up at some point. So we're going to do these patterns because they're getting exposed to them. All right. So a lot of times I'll set up 20 meters and they can, they can do those different patterns. Now, max velocity, because it's warming up, we don't always sprint full speed. We can do drills such as an A march, you know, a, a dead leg drill or something that's vertical propulsion based, which is a max velocity. But all the other drills we can do, you know, pretty simply. So now let's say today. Right? So today is is Thursday. And I want to focus today on lateral development. Lateral stuff is my focus. So I usually choose one, maybe two skills. And I dive deep into those. So at the end of the session, we both, myself and the athletes, have a win. We we walk out of that. I know I got across the things that I need to do. And the athlete says, you know what? I actually got better today at the lateral shuffle, lateral change of direction, maybe lateral run um, than I was before I walked in today. But if I tried to do all seven patterns, the whole workout, the athlete's like, I know I did a lot of stuff today, but I'm not sure what I actually got better at because we mm -hmm. did so many different things. So then the next workout, I might take a minute and review what we did today, but then I'll hit a new pattern. But the great thing about playing sports is they're going to hit those patterns anyway. Whether you and I did something with them anyway, if they're playing, um, let's say, volleyball, they're going to jump. 
They're going to move laterally. They're going to hip turn. They're going to do all that stuff just playing. So I know they're getting exposure. So when I get a day and I can really break down one or two of those skills and get some variation, they're going to benefit from it. They're going to remember it because we're going to hit it again and we're going to review it. But that's much more powerful than me saying, well, for example, let's let's stay with uh, let's stay with let's say uh, let's go soccer, okay? Because that's a world dominant sport, right? If in one practice I worked on ten or eleven different types of kicks, you know, really, how how good are you going to get at any one of those? Because all of them take a different type of a technique. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I'm chipping the ball or whether I'm driving it or I'm trying to get a, a hook on the ball or I'm trying to knuckle the ball, you know, deaden the ball, all these different things, that's hard to do and actually learn a lot. But if I said, you know what, David, today you and I are going to get really good at at hooking the ball because you're going to use that on, you know, maybe on a free kick or a penalty kick or a pass, advanced pass, you want to hook it, you know, and lead your, your teammate. We're going to really focus on that today. You're going to walk out of that practice feeling pretty good about that one skill. And I'm going to, you know, I felt like we got a lot done and then we can come back to it another day. So that's, I think, the biggest mistake we see in sports performance is coaches just have a drill mindset. How many drills can I do? Yeah, 100%. Versus a skill mindset, which is how can I make this skill better today? Mm-hmm. And then come to another and another day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. David Beckham pretty much made a career out of like uh, curling the ball and he used that <laughs> kick. Now, look, don't get me wrong. He, he did a lot of things well, but like yep. that, he, he hit a corner like that. He hit a free kick. He did all his crosses in the exact same way. And he's just phenomenal at that. Um, exactly. But I really like what you said about the, the like drilling or, or just hitting one pattern really hard. That's actually cleared up some thoughts in my head because if you go to those, if you go to those seven patterns and you just do them in every training session or you do them all, then really that's just kind of they're just kind of playing their sport again, aren't they? And they're not actually yeah. ever learning anything. Whereas yeah. if you take a bit of more of a patient approach with it, it's not, it doesn't look as exciting or frantic, maybe, but actually we're just getting, we're just working and every single rep, we're going to get a tiny bit better at this. So maybe then they go to their sport and they're a tiny bit better. It just it just happens subconsciously. I just hit that movement a little bit better than I would have in the past. That's a massive win for someone. Sure. And you know what? With, this brings up a really good point in my mind right now as you're, as you're saying that is I sometimes my correction with an athlete, okay, we have the big general skills. And when we're not doing the, the, the basic movement patterns, I call them correctives. So anytime I'm doing something that's not the exact skill we're going to use in a sport, we just call it a corrective. I'm just trying to correct something. And it might be lowering your center of mass just a little bit. And that changes the whole thing. So take a soccer goalie that is standing too tall always and just isn't able to gain any distance laterally when they're diving to to save a ball. But if I lower their center of mass just a little bit, widen their stance just a little bit, just to give them better force application angles, all of a sudden, now they're reaching maybe an an extra meter Mm -hmm. on a dive versus not. That's all it was. I didn't change really any technique. I just lowered their center of mass, which improved 
their technique. So sometimes that's coaching, right? It's like if if a head coach, if the offense isn't working or the defensive strategy is not working and they change one thing and it works better, well, that's coaching. That's what mm-hmm. it is. It's just it's not always reinventing the wheel. It's just adapting and seeing if it works. The one thing I think all of us have to do as professionals, and you could talk about this a lot in your your area of expertise with with rehabilitation and and uh, you know helping athletes you know recover. Sometimes we don't know for sure if what we're doing is going to work until we get a response. <laughs> Maybe the response for you is is less pain, greater range of motion, um, greater resilience. You know, um, just just maybe it's better that um, they're happier. They come in the next day and they feel better. And you know, hey, something's working because their, their energy is better today. They're not as depressed as they were because they're going through rehab, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's coaching. Coaching is about something just small little steps. If it's not working, we make an adjustment. Yeah, yeah. That's what a skill. That's what a skill coach or a sports coach is doing. Like with a tennis player. We do a thousand serves, we do a thousand volleys, we do a thousand backhands, forehand, forearms, but forehands. Then when you go uh, with like a movement coach, it's just like, it, like if I hit a thousand serves and I do, I hit the net every single time, I, I, I need to change something here. But then you see an athlete doing the same movement where they change direction in, in the same way for 20 years in a row. And it's yep. like, maybe at some stage I have to intervene, but there is coaches out there. There is a thought process out there where it's, it's like, okay, that makes sense with a skill-based coach. A tennis player needs to maybe change or tweak something, what they're doing with, with their serve. But when it comes to change of direction, coaches will say, no, self-organization, let them do their, their, their nervous system is choosing the best option. It might be choosing the best option based on the information it has at the time, but doesn't mean we, can up, we can't update that information a little bit or give it another option, and then maybe it chooses a better option. That's right. And the option that it's choosing is based on the body it currently has. So if that body isn't strong enough, if it doesn't have enough elastic energy, if, it doesn't, if, it, if, the, if the athlete isn't able to play at the correct height, if it isn't able to get through its ankle joint into dorsiflexion, sure, it's going to choose the option available. But if I can improve the dorsiflexion, if I can improve improve strength at a better range of motion, if I can improve some kind of stiffness quality, now they get better. They, they get better. So your exact self-organization by its definition is organizing within its body self at that moment but if you improve the organism well now the 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 self-organization is going to be better right Mm -hmm. so it it's they're right when they say that but if i have an athlete that has zero strength in their legs well their organization isn't going to look very good compared to an athlete that has really good powerful resilient legs you know Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah it's uh that Human development is self-organization, right? A, 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 a six-month-old and, a, and an eighteen-month-old and a two, you know, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, they're developing without a lot of input from us, and we continue that process as we go through. But then sometimes coaches step in and try to change that when the athlete just needs guidance. They just need, you know, if they're going the wrong way, just tilt them a little bit. So now they go down the the correct path. 
That's coaching. That's the art of coaching. That's using science as we know it today to help us. And um, I'm a fan of self-organization, but within correcting the, the, the self. Because if that self isn't a, isn't a strong fixture, we got to correct it so that now self-organization actually means more. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that's, yeah, that's that's what self-organization means to me. But I think to some people it means like, just let them, they're always going to pre- choose the best option and the coach doesn't know better. Well, of course I don't know better, but I can give them a nudge in this direction and, and see what happens and test and retest, I suppose, is the is the is the answer what does that mean then for how you how you do cue some of these drills Lee, with like change direction or any 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 of these agility patterns or whatever how how do we go about doing that in a, in a way that doesn't doesn't mess people up and just maybe gives them enough yep yep that's a that's a big question so so i have a system that i call the reactive tier system okay the reactive tier system kind of was being formulated in my mind years ago. And then, you know, just like anything else, you kind of start to throw stuff out and keep stuff and you kind of put things together. And I, so I started to look at it and say, okay, well, how can I make this so that I can quickly and easily assess my athletes and know kind of where to go? I don't have all the answers from a day to day, but it gives me a better uh, overview. So, it, if, if I have an athlete start with me after they've warmed up, I start my reactive tier. So a tier one simply means the athlete knows the direction they're going to travel to. They just don't know when. Okay. So I'm creating some kind of reactive component or predictive component. They have to kind of predict when they have to move or react when they, when the signal comes a tier two means the athlete doesn't know which way they're going to go and they don't know when, but once they go that way, the drill's done. So for example, it could be a tennis player standing on the baseline and they either have to hit a forehand or a backhand, but they don't know until the coach hits it. And then once they hit it, they just kind of come back to the middle and it starts again. All right, that would be an example of that. As where a tier one could be like a, uh, the, the athlete knows there's going to be a drop shot they just don't know when, mm-hmm. right? And But they know they're going straight ahead. And then a tier three enters in change of direction. So that could be like a mirror drill. You and I, like I'm trying to go right to left, right to left with you. Anytime you change, I have to change. So that's a little bit more advanced. So when I start implementing, uh, when I when I do the warm-up and I give an athlete one of those tier levels, it tells me a lot right off. I could, let's say I had you today, David, and you were doing a drill and I'm like, yeah, you know, you move pretty good, but I I didn't really like your arm action. Your arm action was off. So I can cue you, hey, David, think about this. On your first couple of steps, be more aggressive with longer arms because we know, the athlete doesn't have to know this, but I know if the arm action is longer during acceleration, especially that first couple of steps, that gives them more time to produce power. So by me saying, David, use a longer arm action, or I like to say, throw your hands back. Mm-hmm. So the cue is throw your hands back. So the athlete knows right up. They can just throw their hand back, and that gives them something kinesthetically to work on. And a lot of times, right then, 
I see a difference in an athlete's acceleration. If that, let's say you were taking off and you were popping up, we call that rearing up, like a horse gets scared and it rears up on its hind legs. So I'll say to the athlete, chase your shoulders. And that keeps them forward. Simple cue. I didn't make any mechanical really corrections. All I said is just chase your shoulders. And a lot of times I see a correction. And the, the last part to this is because I've done this so long and I was a phys ed teacher, I understand learning is messy and it takes time. Okay, We both know the brain doesn't automatically in one rep create a smooth motor program. It takes time. You got to carve it out. And then there has to be myelination of that axon so that it's smooth. Well, I understand that. So I have no problem with an athlete doing it, you know, the first time right. And then the next two times wrong. And then the next time kind of right. And then the next three times wrong. And then all of a sudden they hit two times right, one time wrong, and then three times right. Now mm -hmm. I know learning is occurring. So my cueing just has to help the learning process. And sometimes my cueing has to adjust based on the feedback I'm getting from the athlete's performance. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. That's so good that um, you're not a you're not a 90 degree at the elbow guy then. Yeah, not, not in acceleration, max velocity. We go through 90, right? Mm -hmm. But that's going to change. And, and this goes back to our very first conversation when we opened up today is um, just observing. If you watch Usain Bolt or yeah. any of the top sprinters, their arms, when, when they're in max velocity and their left leg is all the way planted in mid-stance, the right arm is almost straight next to the hip. And then it goes back up to, towards 90 in the backside, and it'll come to about 85 on the front side. We pass through 90. But how did we figure that out? What's the best athletes do? And you'll see them. That's mechanically how they want to move yeah. based on yeah. physics. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I read Speed Trap by Charlie Francis recently. I think he had something about Ben Johnson's arm in acceleration or something like that. Was it something about throwing his arm back or so, something like that? Maybe I'm making it up, but there was definitely something there, I think. Um, yeah. And then I see coaches like cueing like a robot, like 90 degree elbow all the time. And it just doesn't marry up with what I see when I see athletes move. No. Well, we, and if we understand physics, like if we understand laws of motion, laws of changing inertia, laws of acceleration, for me to get my body mass, moving okay so to, to get a to get somebody that's you know you know let's say 80 kilos and, and they got to get that mass moving from a standstill well it just makes sense that i have to produce force longer mm -hmm. because i haven't started moving yet so in order to get moving i have to push longer but then the next step will be a little bit less longer and then the third step will be less and eventually my steps are just like tapping because I'm going so fast, it becomes elastic. Well, in the early stages, if I'm gonna push longer, that means my arms have to coordinate with my legs, so they have to be longer. And then as my steps get shorter and quicker, you know, because I'm tapping, my arms will do that. That's just coordination, that's the laws of human movement. So when we look at that and then we watch athletes, we can say, oh, there it is, there's, there's, whether you, whether you study Newtonian laws of movement or whatever you whoever, 
there it is. That's the laws I've been studying. There, it's actually happening in real time, and that's kind of how I developed the same concept of multi-directional speed. Yeah, that's awesome. That's brilliant. Do you do you think do you see many athletes who are actually just so tight, like through the upper body, that they don't have that shoulder extension or their rib cage is is, is super stiff? Yeah, I just did a I just did a short video on that uh, yesterday or the day before on how. Like uh, one of the things I'll do when I know my athletes are going to have a sprint session today or running session today, we'll take these, you know, elastic bands and we'll do functional flexibility through strength. So um, I worked with a professional baseball player one time that was very fast, but he loved to bench press. <laughs> so he was, if you looked at him from the side, he was tight and pulled in and it affected him and it caused injuries because he was incredibly fast. But at those speeds with limited range of motion, something's going to give. So we would do things with him. So like if I were doing a one-arm tubing or a cable press, I would go to extreme range of motion, pause it, hold it for two seconds, but but keep tight. You know, I'm actually getting isometric. I'm not just letting the joint get stretched mm -hmm. too much. And then press all the way and come back. And what it did is it opened up his ability to have that range mm -hmm. in the control. But we did it through kind of almost like potentiating rather than just passively stretching the tissue in the joints. Yeah. We were we were contracting to pull back. And it helps tremendously on those things we were just talking about for accelerating. Yeah, that's brilliant. I'd see that as um, I kind of dive into the breathing stuff a little bit and, and get the ribcage pumping and stuff. I'd just see that as um, getting the pump handle up and the and the opening up the chest wall. And I usually start with like just some breathing drills to get that chest to open. But exactly. like you're you're just doing the same thing there in a, in a different way. Um, and I would progress on to like just strength work through full range and stuff as well. Um, yep. with that uh yeah that's that that's so good so with your with your i think you said with the tears like could i could i look at that as as in rehabilitation then where like so tier one could be could be day one and week one where you're just you know exactly what you're doing so i'm reintroducing like your sport but you know exactly what you're doing you're going to hit a drop shot or whatever and you're just going to step onto your right leg tier two is um maybe you have to move like in a little shuffle is that right but you still know where you're what you're going to do yep you're yep. going to plant onto the right leg and then tier three is like it's just you're you, you have to you have to mirror me so actually as you increase the the speed and uh so it's less top down it's less of a conscious cue now and now you just have to organize your body without without being allowing yourself to think about it exactly and the great thing, and I, I've done a lot of workshops at physical therapy clinics, just introducing these concepts. So I do tier system with the upper body too. So let's say you just had somebody off a shoulder uh, surgery or, or uh, you know, had an injury. So I might say, okay, we're going to do a tier one and you're going to do like a, a an abduction, but you don't know when you got to wait. Maybe there is a light that flashes or maybe you got to match my hand. And they have to move and then come back, move and then come back. And then we start increasing the directions and the range of motion over time. And then we say, okay, you don't know if you're going to do an adduction or an abduction. You just, that's a tier two. And then the tier three is now it's, it's wherever I go, you have to go. So now we're getting the acceleration, deceleration uh, amortization of the shoulder joint, which we know if they're doing it in standing, 
in incorporates the foot, the core, the hips, the low back, the multifidi, everything is being involved with a low level. Maybe, maybe you have a 75 year old person who went through it and needs the whole kinetic chain to get re-engaged again. So we can do it that way as well. So it's kind of fun to play with this stuff. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's cool. I have some closed chain, um, not mine, but like closed chain work against so single arm or let's say you're kneeling down facing a wall, single arm against the wall. And you have a lot of weight in on that hand. So that, that would be like level one, maybe an isometric there. Level two is you start kneeling and, uh, actually, well, these aren't necessarily levels, but like level two, you start kneeling. I have a post on my Instagram from like two years ago. You're kneeling, your hand is on the floor and you have to push off that hand and then land on the wall and yeah. catch yourself on the wall in that in that isometric and then level three would be exactly that where i'm like standing beside you your hand is on the floor so you're put you're pushing you're producing force off that hand and then you're accepting it against the wall but just before you hit the wall you're you're gonna i'm gonna say like okay to the right or up yep. or to the left or down and you're, you have to catch it in in one of those positions so uh just it's kind of a playing around with the clothes chain stuff sounds very 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 similar to what you're doing there Definitely. That's what it is. And, it, and it's, it's about reintroducing. So if we have healthy athletes, okay, we can do healthy things. We can just go and experiment and play and we're, mm -hmm. we're unafraid. But when we have somebody that's coming off an injury, we still have this huge array of things we can do if we're creative, because we can go obviously closed chain to open chain and reactive or very methodically uh, you know, I put a band on my wrist that's pulling me into a deduction, but I have to abduct very controlled athlete or the client knows exactly what they're getting. And then we can start to change it. We can add perturbations. We can do all these things. Well, the tier system in its, in its just bare bones, basic is just tier one tells me, I know where I'm going. I don't know when tier two says, I don't know which way I'm going. I don't know when, but once I go there, the drill restarts again. And a tier three just tells me I'm going to have to react multiple times. Well, we can dress that up in all different ways for all different joints of the body or big global athletic movement. So it's kind of fun to play with when you, mm -hmm. when you start, you know, just kind of digging in deep with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. That's why I, th I think, I think rehab professionals are, are coaches who work with people who are maybe injured or kind of injured, bit, but not really. I think sometimes it broadens their it broadens their horizon or their view of movement a little bit because you have to be sometimes a bit more structured with your progressions because obviously the athlete is at the, at risk and that that allows you to come up with things like these tier systems and and different things like that because you, you sometimes you just need it to fall back on. Yeah. Um, where yeah. does what what about the like the logistics of training speed and agility? where an athlete is in season, they're training hard, they're playing games, and you only have a certain amount of time with them. And they're maybe coming in a little bit beaten up from, from their games, or maybe there's a risk of like a tendinopathy or something here. Is, is that a time where you're just, you're just doing a lot less or do you still try and keep it in as much as you can? Yeah, no, I, I don't do nearly as much. Um, it's more keeping them healthy because they're getting all those change of directions. Uh, the only thing that I might let, let's let's take a goalie again. They're probably not getting a ton of sprint work. Mm -hmm. So we might for a goalie say, hey, once a week, every seven days, every eight days, let's get 
you know, three reps of 30 meters in or 40 meters, plenty of rest in between, you're done. That's it. We got exposure to it. We might do that. But if I'm dealing with athletes that are getting a lot of pounding and stuff, I just try to make them feel better, make sure they still maintain or improve if we can their force production ability. In a, but that might even be an isometric. That might be something a little safer for them. Um, definitely, I get away from jumping in season because what you just said with the potential for bothering the tendons and joint surfaces, we want to be careful there. Um, um, but if I have a player that doesn't get a lot of playing time, now we're training. We're going to train because they never know. Somebody could get injured, and now all of a sudden they're into the starting lineup. But if if that player doesn't get injured and they're on the bench all the time and they're not getting a lot of exposure to stuff, they start to regress because they're not getting game time. So those athletes we have to be able to have a different schedule for. Um, so one of the things that I always like to do if possible, and I'll even do this with my own children, is – we might say, hey, after your game, try to get five to 10 minutes in of, you know, maybe some, you know, maybe five sets of three reps of goblet squats. You know, let's maintain your range of motion, maintain that joint congruency in those ranges, maintain some good strength or improve if we can, but then you're done. That's it. That's all you're doing. Or maybe we're going to do some rows same thing, body weight rows off a TRX or a strap, you know, uh, I'll do things like that to help them maintain that. But in terms of the speed and agility, I I do it if I need to do it. But if I don't need to do it, I don't just to keep it simple. I, I, I just try to make sure the athlete's always fresh mm -hmm. and recovered. Yeah, because sometimes that's the best thing for them. Just make sure they're they're getting sleep, they're recovering well, and, and we're helping them uh, cool warm down or cool down after a competition so they feel better yeah that's the tricky part for me so because i work with a lot of athletes more and more so now actually who are actually it's not a, it's not a rehabilitation thing it's a like okay i'm i'm kind of injured but i can still play my sport these yeah. kind of you know this this broad category of people um yep. and there is a lot of those athletes actually and in season then you, it's, it's very hard to give them any any plyometrics and running and stuff like that because they're it's let's say they even just train like a gaelic footballer's training a tuesday a friday and then they have a game on sunday and then they're in the gym monday and wednesday and in their gym session like my priority there is get them to feel a lot better and just kind of cleanse the body and, and rinse out the joints and all of this stuff and maybe do some isometrics of the tendinopathy but like the reason they're getting keep getting beaten up in the first place is because they're just not moving as well as they should be on the pitch. So you want to train this, you want to help them, you want to you want to get that foot, you want to get that reactivity back, but there's just such little time and space to get that in. It's one of my I like I have nightmares about this stuff. I can't I <laughs> where can we where can we get this in? And then you get to a preseason or an off season and it there is a there is a nice chunk of time where you can get it in, but then they're just yeah, in season, it's so hard. It's, one of the things that I try to do is if if we're in, and I used to do this with my basketball teams because basketball is very similar in the sense that there's so much jarring and change of direction, much like tennis. You know, it's just it's, points can be long, possessions can be long, and they're jarring. So what I would do is do band-resisted quick accelerations 
because it's only concentric. Mm-hmm. They're producing longer force and it's not, it's not a really sharp, quick force. So it's less uh, affecting the tendon and the joints because they produce the force longer because of the resistance. So I can still keep my force production properties high and effective, but I'm not jarring them. Because so what I would do is let's say you and I were playing basketball, we're on the team together. I'll put the band around you and you work for three seconds, five seconds on pushing away. And then we switch and then I go and then we go and we do a few reps there so I can keep force production up. But I'm reducing the jarring effects, which is causing the the pain. So sometimes I can remedy some of the technical issues they're getting by using that technique, because I can do that in multiple planes of motion, mm-hmm. other than jumping, like you said. If we do jumping, we never land on the ground, we land on a box or something. Mm-hmm. So all they're doing is producing force, and then they just walk down, if if that's something we we deem that's necessary. But again, we you just got to be playing the sport has to be the priority for these athletes, because if it's not, yeah. You know, now we're in trouble with the head coach, and everybody else is mad at us. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's where you're going to your just in general. Then in season, you're 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 going a lot heavier towards the lifting side of things, I presume. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. we can control that. And the athletes, the great thing with that is you say to the athlete, work in the range that doesn't bother you, that's pain free. And, you know, you know, research tells us what, maybe 10 to 15 degrees on either side of that motion. Sometimes we can gain a, a uh, some accumulation of motion there. So if we can do that with an athlete, sometimes we can get a lot of benefits. And like you said earlier, we get some isometric work. We can reduce that that pain in a, in a tendon for a little bit and they can get some good work in and then help them recover, whether we're doing some kind of flossing technique to help get rid of inflammation or whatever techniques that work, then we can mm-hmm. at least buy some time for the athletes. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, you said something earlier about the, the backpedaling stuff. Um, it's like one of the first things you said, how, how much you liked it, I think even in, in PE. Um, why? What's yep. so good about it? So backpedaling is, number one, I think it's phenomenal for input, proprioceptive input, uh, because if you think about it, a lot of people in general, not just athletes, we lose the ability to go backwards and have even vestibular awareness of where we are in space and joint awareness and and limb awareness. Um, It drives a natural dorsiflexion of the toes the mid-tarsal joint, the foot itself, the ankle, it gives my Achilles tendon and that's that tissue on the back of the lower leg, great input. And depending on, we, we have a backpedal technique that we call a compact, which would be squatting down more. Then I get more communication with my quadriceps in my soleus and my Achilles. If we do it extended, so very tall and long, now I'm getting more gastro and hip flexor. So we're getting that cross chain, but focusing on different areas. But I get really good input for the athlete, sensory feeling of range of motion and how I'm feeling. But the other thing that's really good with it 
is it's it's really good and healthy with blood supply and stuff for the the tent, the quads, the knees. You know, I'm getting some really good metabolic effect there too. If I'm if I'm adding some weight to it, like maybe I have a thing called an exogeny, which is like a rope, you know, and you, and I do that a lot. I've been doing that for a long time. But when I have my young kids learn these different types of back pedals, they they gain good functional range of motion and control and strength in these joints that we just don't hit very yeah. much going forward. So yeah. those are some basic things that I like to do with it. Yeah, that would have been in every like Gaelic football and hurling warm up, like just jog out to the line and backpedal. But when I think back, it was like backpedal, but like you're just on your toes. It's like a little skip backwards. Yeah. And it's just missing all the good stuff of of letting that heel drop or maybe being down in a bit more of a squat and getting that dorsiflexion back. Um, yes. Actually, now that I think about it, like most of the things were up on your toes, up on your toes. Yeah. And yeah, that's just something that was just misunderstood for a long time, I think. Yeah. We have a warm-up routine that we'll go through. So the athlete will bend their knees quite a bit. So they're at least 45 degrees, if not 90, get right down. And then they start backpedaling, and, I, and I'm very specific during the warm-up. They go right to the toe, and then dorsiflex, trying to get to the ball of the foot, and then go flat-footed, and then push off, and then you do it on the other. So we go straight back, and then the next time we do it, every step, we rotate the arms to one side or the other. Now the foot is fighting through pronation, in supination because it's being led from a top-down driver, right? Mm-hmm. My upper back. So now the athlete is fighting those ranges, but it's improving the proprioception all the way through that foot and ankle. And then we start speeding it up, and then we'll start doing it sideways. So we go sideways, do the same thing. So now we're working pronation, supination with some abduction, adduction, and different patterns on that. And it, it only takes a minute because we'll go up. 10 meters, back 10 meters, switch it, boom, boom, and we're in and out. And then we start going faster. Then we start running backwards. And I have a series that we do, which is called the 180 series. Which So let's say we're going 20 meters. I jog forward 10 meters, and then I do a 180, and I backpedal the rest of the way without stopping in between. And then we come back, do the same thing, forwards, turn back, and then we go backwards, 180 to go forwards, Then the magic happens when we start manipulating the eyes and the head. So let's say I'm running at you and I get 10 meters and I start my 180, but I have to keep my eyes and my head on you as I'm turning. Mm -hmm. Now I'm driving cervical thoracic range of motion and it's very dynamic. It goes from open to closed chain, depending on if I'm on contact with the ground. And But that's very specific for sport because sometimes when we're backpedaling, Our eyes aren't looking exactly the way we're going or away from where we're going. It's somewhere in between. And then we do just the opposite where we start running forward and then I whip my eyes and head around really fast, which brings the body around really fast. So the athletes, every two weeks, we try to switch it up on them and add more to it. And it's amazing to see them. uh, What I I try to tell them is imagine you're running on a balance beam. So you got to stay on the balance beam. Don't don't zigzag on it. Yeah. Stay straight. And it's very challenging for athletes. So if you have them run on the pitch and they run on one of the lines, you'll see they're like all over the 
if they were driving a car, you don't want to be on the road with them, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You want to try to get them straight. So it's a really fascinating system of development mm-hmm. and helps the athletes. And it's great for rehab too. Yeah, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Like, like people talk about warm-ups and just doing the same things. And if athletes just get bored, bored with warm-ups, it doesn't have to. There's so oh. much stuff there. There's a million variables, the eyes, the head, everything. Um, yeah. I see what you're saying about the, the whip. You see, uh, like I, I watch my dog. I throw, I throw a ball for my dog, and she just throws her head first, and the whole body just whips and follows. And that the yep. head is a heavy thing that can that can be manipulated. Yeah, that's right. And you know, it's fun with this drill is we can you and I as the coaches or trainers can lead it, but then eventually, what I like to do is I'll say, okay, David, you're in front of me, maybe three, four meters. You're backpedaling. I'm jogging towards you. So we're looking at each other as you back. But then when you turn, I have to turn and go into my back pedal. And then we finish and then we reverse it coming back. That's almost like a tier one. Mm-hmm. Because we know what we're going to do. We just don't know when. And then we can ma- manipulate it where it can be a tier two, where you're going backwards. I'm going, when you stop and come at me, I have to stop and go backwards. So now we're entering into that a mm-hmm. uh, little bit of deceleration, but we know it's going to happen. We just don't know when. So Yeah, that's yeah. so good. That's so good. It, for anyone listening, like that part of the podcast, if you just rewind all of what Lee was saying there about the back pedals and stuff, people are always asking me about rehab for their shin splints and their Achilles. Like once you've got past the, okay, I've done some calf raises and some foot stuff and ankle stuff, like reintroducing some kind of impact, backpedaling and all those, that, that stuff, you would see a massive part. You would see me doing tons of that with my with my athletes in the rehab process and just anyone who's, who needs to get back running and stuff. It can kind of, especially if they've been plodding along forward running for a while, it can kind of scramble the signal of how they move and suddenly that just propels them forward for some reason, for whatever reason, but it's so nice for them. Yep. yep. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Lee. I have um I have one more question for you. This is my generic question. Yeah. I did I I you I know you haven't listened to a podcast and I know you haven't uh prepped this, so this is off the cuff. But you're gonna go to um you're on a desert island for a week and you're gonna bring you can bring three coaches with you. No, not actually not just coaches, three people that you'd love to learn for from for a week. So some people ask this question where you're like at a dinner for, but you have a full week with these people. So who are the three people that you'd bring? Okay, this is a good one. I've had to be dead or alive. Yeah. Okay, good. I was just going to ask you that. And uh, so um, I definitely would want to know more about this. There was a, you know, some of your listeners may be very familiar with a guy by the name of John Wooden. John Wooden was one of the best basketball coaches. You know, he was really good. And not even so much because I want to learn basketball from him, but he was excellent at coaching, at at life and and doing things. He would be a guy that I would definitely be interested in in having with me. and then uh, let's see, who else would we go with? I would probably, this, this person isn't necessarily a, a uh, coach per se, but I would want to have an athlete like um, uh, Jesse Owens, um, who was obviously at that time was the fastest athlete in the world, but had to do things during a time when equipment was minuscule. They're digging holes in the track to, to have a block. 
doing stuff like that. I would want to know what they learned, what they did and how they trained because I think, and this is because my dad was a, uh, you know, he, he was a uh, physical fitness instructor in World War II. And so I learned a ton from him. A lot of stuff I do today has to do with what he did back in the 40s. Yeah. So I'm real big on historical, uh, you know, stuff like that. So he would definitely be one. And then um, I would say one of the guys that fascinates me, I think he's just so brilliant, is a guy by the name of Dan Paff. Dan Paff is a lot of people know who's uh, one of the one of the top track and field coaches, but he's more than that. He's known in the track and field where he's phenomenal at coaching. And the reason I like uh, Coach Paff so much is because he's a student, constantly learning, constantly studying. He studies the European and the Asian and the you know whether Canada or whoever has a model of. He learns it and implements it. And I love coaches like that. So he would be a guy that I would be very interested in. And it's funny because these questions are always tough because there's so many other people mm-hmm. that I would love to have. But off the top of my head, those are people that I I try yeah. to study quite a bit. Yeah, that's a good group. Uh, Dan, Dan seems like a very good guy as well and ton of yeah. integrity. So have, have you met him? Yeah, absolutely. I've met him and I had him on my podcast years and years ago. Uh, and I was I spoke at a, a an event with him one time, and he's just a he's a good guy. And this is the reason I like you know Dan uh, Bouchak Snyder is another guy. A lot of the older coaches like myself were teachers. You know Dan was a Dan was a high school teacher. He was a football coach and tr- coached track, and I think he might have even did wrestling and and all that for like 10, 11 years. And Boo the same way. And so these are guys that that were in it you know they were their hands were dirty with coaching and teaching and you know long days and then they kept growing and growing and then they specialized and that's why they became eventually college and then work in world world-class athletes but it all started with just yeah they're just a teacher they're like yeah. one of our teachers and yeah so i i always appreciate those guys because yeah. they're real teachers yeah they teach you know so. I have a ton of respect for for that big time yeah. i um i coached nothing nothing i'm not trying to compare myself but i coached gymnastics for 12 or 18 months maybe two years but uh just with kids just kids gymnastics and i learned more from that than anything else probably just especially on the communication side like if you can't make it clear and simple for a group of 20 10 year olds (laughs) you don't have a chance and um i went straight i was coaching kids gymnastics and then i went straight into um kind of snc stuff for our local professional soccer team and the the stuff i learned with the kids like i was able to carry straight over to the guys and it was, I, I felt a massive carry over there so that was my my teaching there was so important for my development i'm so glad you mentioned gymnastics because i had a really good background in gymnastics because my dad was big in it and he taught it in uh, physical education back when i was in school. I mean, we were in fourth grade doing backflips and, and, you know, giant swings and stuff like that, because we had a big, nowadays, you don't see it anymore. Nobody wants to do it because of liability. But I used to teach gymnastics. I did a big unit when I was a uh, a phys ed teacher. And you're so right. And you want to talk about having to be um, on point with your teaching when you're doing gymnastics. That's the sport. 
other sports, you know, hey, if they if they trip and stumble playing basketball, no harm lost. But if you fall on your head in gymnastics, that's a little different injury, right? So you're you're right. You you do you really and especially if you're doing 20, 20 students, you you gotta be right to the point. Otherwise, you got them all over the place. Yeah. It's just like, listen to me, this is the drill, and this is what we're gonna do. And then in a minute's time, we might make it more advanced. Everyone do exactly what I say. And like not not in those words, but that's what you're trying to get across because danger is a is a is a real possibility there. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, Lee, what um now's your chance to kind of plug your whatever or where, where you'd like people to go or follow you or whatever. So off you go. I appreciate that. Um, first of all, if anybody just wants to follow me, I try to post a lot of stuff. So at Lee Taft, you can pretty much follow me on Instagram or any of the social medias. I'm pretty easy to follow there. Um, if you want, you know, kind of like where I'm traveling or what stuff we're doing, uh, LeeTaft.com is a good site to connect with us and, and uh, get involved with anything we're doing. And then if you're in the area of like, if you like basketball, I've been doing a lot with basketball performance lately, uh, basketball speed specialist basketball speed specialist.com and that's a we have a course where we actually teach the coaches communication and how to use certain skills to help their athletes be able to move better on the basketball court so kind of fun stuff but yeah anytime they type in at Lee Taft they'll follow me on any social media and I try to share a lot of stuff so mm-hmm. so I appreciate it David thank you you're welcome man that's brilliant what uh well, how hard was it to you? Did you just come up with your own like basketball certifica- certification thing there um, for, for coaches? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was a head coach for years. I started actually coaching in the later 80s and then on and off. And I coached boys and I went to the girls side and I've done a lot of lot of performance. And I worked with about eight or nine NBA teams as well. So what I one thing that I learned a long time ago is having the communication. So if I say to you, David, I want you to use a snap shuffle. That's a specific type of shuffle that's going to help us in our defense. And that's what this product's about. It's about using different types of language to help athletes understand, oh, okay, that's the technique you want me to use versus just saying, hey, you know, cover that guy, you know, cover that girl. This is how I want you to do it. And so that's how we developed this certification so that coaches can use it. And the real reason I was doing this was coaches who want to advance in their profession. If they have this certification and they can communicate how to teach speed better for them, there's a lot of colleges and professional teams and and even uh, European clubs that have it and federations that this becomes very beneficial if you can improve the defensive and offensive efficiency and how they move. Mm-hmm. So that was a big reason why we did it. Yeah. Awesome, man. Lee, I appreciate it. It's St. Patrick's Day over here. I couldn't have, um, I couldn't have, I, I will be probably going for a few points later on, but you, uh, you, start, you started my day off very, very well. So I really appreciate the chat. Awesome. Thank you, David. I appreciate it. Happy St. Patrick's Day.